We have some problems over here right now. We might have a hijack over here, two of them. And restore control. And now there's a new form of cyber matchmaking, college networking websites. Is this perhaps the next big thing? Same-sex couples soon be able to head to the United The British people have voted to leave the European Union. A major leap for mankind, said French President François Hollande. I am officially running can do for President of the United States and we are going to make our country great again. We expect to see the number of cases, the number of deaths, and the number of affected countries climb even higher. Welcome to another episode of 21st Century Christian, where we endeavor to apply the truth of God's Word to the challenges we face here and now in this, our ever-changing 21st century. All right, good day, folks. Today, I am privileged and honored to be joined by a good friend of mine and brother in Christ, Mr. David Nyhoff. Hello, David. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing well. How about yourself, Bryce? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Um, so we have a lot of ground to cover here. And, you know, as you know, I, I invited you on you know, sort of last minute, but I figured that you'd be a good guy to have and sort of help us um, cover this important topic that we're that we're dealing with. But maybe first you could sort of uh, give us a little information about who you are and uh, where your interest in this issue stems from. Oh, sure. Yeah, sure thing. Hopefully I'll uh, live up to the uh, expectations that you've set down. Um, <laughs> I guess I could, I could talk about, uh, I guess I met you what it must have been five years ago now or something like that for when you uh, started attending my church. Um, yeah, I guess I guess I should I'm say not... that first, that we're both members of Providence Reformed Church in Winnipeg, and you're actually recording from there right now. So yeah, for sure. <laughs> Hopefully not, uh, not too much of an echo here. But uh, yeah, I'm a university student, uh, hard at work as well, um, political science major right now. So maybe that's uh, can sort of segue into a bit of the interest. I've always been sort of taken with politics since probably my early teenage years, maybe even a little sooner and, and very in- involved in, in various parties and activities. Had the chance to, um, to work at our provincial legislature here for a year. And uh, yeah, I think some of that interest perhaps has waned, but I still like to keep a, a finger on the pulse in the news of the election cycle. And uh, we've got a big one coming up here federally in Canada. And uh, this brings us today's topic, I suppose. Timely topic indeed. Absolutely. And that's sort of why I, I wanted to, to cover this is because we are obviously in Canada and we have an election. Justin Trudeau, the current prime minister, has called um, what is is referred to as a snap election. Maybe you could, you know, tell our listeners a little bit about what a snap election is. Well, for sure. Um, I guess always in uh, political science in Canada, you tend to get in the context of comparing things to America. So uh, our neighbors to the South uh, would have a, a rigid fixed election cycle. So a president is elected and four years later set down by law that that's when the election happens uh, here in Canada, like, most other former British colonies, we follow the Westminster system. And it actually gives a pretty unique power compared to that of the States to the prime minister to uh, 
pretty much call an election whenever he chooses. He, uh, the, the form of that would be uh, a visit to the governor general and he can just decide, hey, you know, now's the time. And here we are headed to the polls. That's interesting how it's so different than the American system. Um, now, is there, what is the major um, critique of that, that, that system that we have? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Like, should the prime minister um, be free to call a snap election? Well, like, like many of the, the traditions and uh, uh, I guess, uh, yeah, yeah, traditions is probably a pretty good word for how most of our system has been developed over hundreds of years from the United Kingdom. So I, I guess it is what it is. No matter who's in power, the other party is going to critique this move of calling a snap election. Mm. Um as, as, as being a power grab. And, and that is the idea from Justin Trudeau's perspective. He's, he's hoping to make a, a significant seat gain here um, to reduce or eliminate, I should say, the need for support from other parties within the House of Commons to affect his, uh, affect his legislation. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think maybe another thing worth exploring a little bit too is, is exploring further is just how our system, our parliamentary system differs um, from our neighbors to the south and with regard to their republic that they have going on there like what 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 are the similarities between the two but what are the maybe more worth focusing on because i think a lot of canadians don't really understand fully how our system in canada works and maybe they're actually even more familiar with the american system and if someone's listening you know from another country they probably don't know how the canadian system works either so this might be a good time to sort of explore that a little bit um, so what what makes the canadian system unique Say not a lot when uh, compared to Great Britain, but one important difference uh, from the states is is um, I'm not I'm not sure if this is so much the political system or the corporate scheme or lobby scheme, but in, in the states you you have a, a dichotomy really between the Republicans and the Democrats, and that's the only two parties that you're left with. Either you're electing one or the other. Uh, in Canada, I think perhaps. You could say we have the advantage of, of many, many other parties and um, even smaller uh, interest parties that can gain uh, a lot more traction and votes than, uh, than in the United States. Hmm. I believe federally we have, uh, what is it, five parties currently holding seats in the, uh, the House of Commons? Yeah, so that, those are, uh, for those who don't know, the Liberal Party, the Conservative Party, um, the Green Party, the NDP and the Bloc, right? Yeah, yeah, that would be correct. I think uh, I think you got them all there. The PPC having lost their only seat in uh, in the last election. So we do have a little bit of a broader system then, in terms of um, not being a, a two party solely two party system. Although we could say that as it stands right now, and has as has been the case for the last, I don't know. You would probably know more about the dates for this, but. I mean, our prime minister has been either a member of the Conservative Party, the Liberal Party for quite some time, correct? Yeah, to my knowledge, I, I think that the Conservative or Liberal Party have been the only parties to hold power all the way back to, uh, to uh, Confederation. So that, now, so now in on a, the Conservative yeah. side, it's not a continuous lineage, but you can see that the dominant... Um, conservative or right-wing, if you will, party is the alternative to the liberals. People often make the joke that uh, the liberals are the, quote, natural governing party in Canada. Okay, so that's that's very interesting. Uh, but you definitely see, you pointed out this, the idea of the, the left and the right 
And so even though we do have a different system in Canada, so to speak, than in America, you still see that divide between what we refer to as the right and the left, correct? Yes, absolutely. On a a functional day-to-day governing standpoints, there is only two parties that have ruled since confederation, if, if you could put it that way. But there's always, it seems to be historically speaking, like going back to the French Revolution, um, you see these, the divide where, you know, you can have multiple parties, but they're usually, you know, they, they lean towards one direction or the other ultimately, right? Correct. Yeah. Whether fiscally or, or socially. Yes. Yeah. So then that's more of a, it gets into more the of right the, or the left. Yeah. Then that's more of a discussion about, I guess, um, the theory behind. Um, but why do you think it is that people, you know, tend to go to one or the other? Well, I guess that gets into more of the, uh, I guess, the nitty gritty of, of um, you know, how campaigns are run and elections are run. Typically in the Westminster system, you'll see this in Canada a lot. And you'll also see this in um, the United Kingdom. The more dominant parties will make uh, plays to voters that they're trying to capture and, and bring into their base, bring into their um, constituency of support. They'll say, hey, I know that you hold these views and that this uh, party more closely matches your views. But hey, if you're going to vote for them, that's a vote that we don't have. And the net result of that, from their perspective, is that they're going to lose to a party that neither the voter nor them agrees with, Hmm. if I've made that clear enough. So in Canada, an example might be, you know, the liberals might say a vote for the NDP is a vote for the conservatives. Because sure. if the liberal candidate doesn't win, then it's going to split the vote and, you know, the right wing party is going to take the seat just as an example. But that flows both sure. ways across the across the spectrum. Now, this I, this political um, idea or this 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 idea of politics, I mean, this is this is as, as old as humanity itself. I mean, people are always trying to organize themselves. According to a certain structure and according to a certain set of, of laws and, and policies. Um, and I guess one of the questions that I have is just with regards to our, our sort of two party system or our, uh, the dichotomy between right and left, it makes you wonder why people have always been sort of more um, one way or the other. And you can sort of divide people even now more than ever, it seems distinctly in between these groups of left wing and right wing. Whereas before, maybe you, there was a little bit more nuance um, in this country. Maybe you had people who are a little bit more uh, central or independent, but do you think people are getting pushed um, further and further to the, to either side of the aisle? Well, I think it's, it's a little contrived almost to refer to the political spectrum as, as left and right. You know, there's, yeah. there's many, many different scales you could you could define people's political views on you could have socially left socially right fiscally Mm. left fiscally right authoritarian um uh uh, libertarian on the other end of of the spectrum so i guess yeah so we sort of have these labels just to make sense of stuff hey well and also i think our system forces people into big tents or yeah, almost the least objectionable, um, least objectionable tent for their their personal views. Maybe that's a good way of looking I at it. And I, sort you, of, I think if you looked yeah. at that, sorry, go ahead. Well, I would say if you looked at the individual, there might be perhaps um, a lot more variety than uh, 
then the election results uh, interesting display. but that's that's the system we're, we're put into yeah i think that's a good Churchill point said it's the worst system we have but it's yes it's the best one we have democracy the you know the worst the worst system except for all the others um so that's another maybe we can segue into that but i, I guess it sort of leaves us with the question of chicken and egg right do the do the people create the party do the party create the people because you see these you know the people sort of um whatever party sort of has stands for let's say the largest number of views which they hold they sort of end up adopting all the rest of the platform as well right um and i see that more and more where people feel obligated Certainly to be yeah well i think you see people like they say okay i'm a conservative but i have to be that means i have to check off all these other boxes here too and mm-hmm, i think mm-hmm. that's just how it works with other things also with belief systems people feel like they have to buy into the entire uh, system. Um, maybe that's something that they feel naturally inclined to do, or maybe that's something that they feel pressured um, to do by other people. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering if now I see more people having less of an independent spirit um, and more of a, I don't know what the right word would be, p- easier, they're more easily amalgamated into the whole framework, the whole system. Um, so, you know, if you're a conservative, therefore you have to um, adhere to this or that. And if you're on the left, you're left of center, well, you have to adhere to this and this and also this. And so that sort of becomes part and parcel with people's identity. I don't know. Does that make, does that make sense? You I think, I think there's definitely some truth in that, uh, but uh, I almost wonder if in other cases, people, you know, don't realize that, uh, they're being forced or if it, if it is, does mm. become more of a natural choice. We do, we do naturally gravitate towards people who um, hold similar views and, and uh, accept similar things and have similar True. behavior to us. And I wonder if that sort of naturally falls in that, you know, I agree with Bryce on this issue. He must be right on this issue to a certain extent. I know that's a simplification, but no, that's actually, I think that's a really good point. And, and this is the, the issue with politics that we're faced with because it, people are going to divide themselves. Um, They are going to associate with like-minded individuals and people are going to organize themselves accordingly. And that's basically what politics is. Um, It's correct me if I'm wrong. It's, it's the governance of a it's a it's a body of people or a single ruler governing a, a society, but it has a lot to do with organization, correct? Like what is the proper way of organizing these people who live in this specific place? Correct, correct. Yeah. It's it's a system of sorting out, you know, what government should be. And obviously there's so many different theories on that. And people have tried so many different things. Um, what is the best system for government? We mentioned Churchill's comment about democracy. Uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Maybe what you could maybe explain to us is how our system in Canada is democratic, how that differs from the United States, um, and maybe a little bit about um, how that is similar to to England, because technically we're still uh, closely related to England, are we not? Well, you could definitely, you definitely see the descendants of our, our parliamentary system down to very fine details from that. I think that there is, you can even see this in our court system, uh, some 
more affinity towards American influence. Uh, I mentioned the courts because many uh, U.S. precedents are even cited by our Supreme Court in, in some decisions. Um, so perhaps, perhaps there's a bit of both, a bit of influence from the states. But I would say for today's question, um, given the upcoming election, the, the most important difference would be that, you know, you can argue as, as to how it happened, but the development of a two-party system versus, you know, the plethora of choice that we have here in Canada. I guess another important thing to mention is um, the function of the U.S. system where politicians are elected uh, individually for both the, the House, the Senate, and then a presidential election happens separately from that. Whereas here in Canada, as far as the nitty gritty of the law is concerned, if you get down to the details, you're simply electing a local candidate who happens to be part of a party that happens to have a leader who by convention is now going to fill this office of prime minister. Yeah. You know, and that's so sort there of, there was no the constitutional th- amendment in England or, or law that said, you know, political parties have to exist or, or this is, hmm. you can see the development of cabinet, of course, that was, that was set down, but, but really at the heart of it, it, it really is just an election of a local candidate. Yeah. And I think that's what people maybe sometimes realize. And I think when I came to that age where I could vote, I was sort of, <laughs> I think I, I just didn't understand exactly how it worked. And then I realized, wait, I mean, I'm not, I mean, I'm voting for the guy who's running on the TV, but at the same time, I'm not right. Because I'm voting for someone local. That's true. But, but also in the same sense, I, I would like to mention that, you know, Justin Trudeau or, or any of the major party leaders, I think it's universal in their party constitutions that, mm if you want to run under the party banner, it has to be signed by the leader who in this case would become prime minister. So in that way, in Canada, the leader of the party or the prime minister exercises, he sort of has his, uh, his MPs by the, by the throats, if you will. Hmm. No, that's a good point. So there, there is room for more individuality in the, in the U S system that people sort of run. They are a Republican, but they have more freedom as a representative. As a That's very interesting. I don't think most people realize that. And, and another thing I want to touch on, because I don't want to get too far off into the weeds here, but I find this political stuff very interesting and fascinating. Um, I'm not sure about everyone who's listening to it, but and obviously we could talk on and on about um, how the breakdown works, but just maybe tell us a little bit about the, the role of the queen in the Canadian system. <laughs> Only as a figurehead these days, Bryce, and uh, she hasn't visited in quite some time. You could see the um, governor general as being the, the figurehead of the queen. The queen's dog, sometimes people say. <laughs> <laughs> the queen's dog, I'm sure. The queen's dog. Yeah, the governor general yes. appreciates that. But through, through many um, historical precedences, you could think of Canada here, uh, the King Bing affair, if anyone's interested in looking that up. The governor general really is is nothing but a pawn, and the queen too is is our head of government, and strictly speaking, has to uh, approve our laws through her representative, the governor general. But there's no disagreement there. The governor general serves at the pleasure of the prime minister, essentially. So responsibility so they, back to the people is is the modern the modern way in Canada. And so that it's it's a dem- democracy, and it's you know that the queen is just sort of a symbolic. Uh, role. Although on paper, I guess we would say that she technically does hold um, the power, right? 
for sure. It's certainly in the United Kingdom, but I believe in Canada as well. Um, the way that the law is written, she, she never has abrogated any of her authority. She still retains, retains all of it. So that's very but interesting. What would know. happen if she chose to exercise it? Yeah, that's I don't know. That's a good aside, question. It's, yeah, it's we a, could maybe, yeah, I know, but I would, I mean, we can talk more about that. Because those are fun sort of what if scenarios that we should look at. So basically, this is just this is just laying the framework for the discussion of, you know, the title of the episode is who should I vote for? And I think what I wanted to sort of do today was I'm not going to I'm not telling anybody specifically you ha- should vote for this person. Um, but I think that it's important as Christians to consider the political landscape before us. And, and when we are going to the polls um, we cannot set our, our fidelity to Jesus aside at the door. And, and so I think there are ways in which we need to think biblically about the candidates before us, the options that we have uh, before we exercise our, our vote. And I think we need to vote um, from an informed perspective. And so that I think that means actually understanding how the politics works in this country, like what our vote actually does, what it actually accomplishes, how the system is, is, is run, but then also from a moral perspective and a theological perspective, how that should have a say and an impact in our decisions on a political level. Um, so you're studying at the University of Winnipeg, correct? That is correct, yes. Yeah, so I'm actually, um, I have this book in front of me here. I, it's an old book. And I picked it up from a, a used book sale. And, and in the beginning, there's a stamp. It says discarded by the University of Winnipeg. Um, so it was there at some <laughs> point. <laughs> now, I don't know why. Some of these books, you know, people, they're old and people don't take them out. And so they're sort of just taking up space. Um, it was originally published by Oxford University Press. But anyways, the, 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 the title of the book is The Theology of, of Politics. The Theology of Politics. And there's a lot of people who would say that these two realms should not um, converse with one another. And, you know, there's plenty of Christians who, who, who think that, well, we shouldn't, you know, should, we shouldn't vote, um, that there should be this, and we'll talk about this shortly. There should be this maintain, there should be maintaining this separation between church and state at all times and et cetera, et cetera. But I like this, this line that this gentleman writes in this book. And he says this, he says, all political problems are at bottom theological. And he says, it is true that the religious or irreligious labels that men wear offer no no certain clue to their political opinions, but obviously a man's political outlook is colored or even determined by his real thought or thoughtlessness about God and man and the meaning of human life, end quote. Um, And I found that to be, To be, to be pertinent to our discussion here and pertinent to the relationship between theology and politics, generally speaking. So we have to face the reality that there is politics. We can't escape politics. Um, you know, we, we can say, well, I want to be removed and separate from the world. And then we could go and we could build ourselves a colony somewhere where we're totally not involved. But even then, can we ever truly, let's say for we decide to start an Amish style community. Can we ever truly escape politics as Christians? I'd have to say no. You know, there's, there's always going to be um, a power hierarchy. And who knows if that's even biblical, that that should be carried out by the church, perhaps in a colony situation. 
I think that, you know, separation of powers is a, is a good and necessary uh, doctrine, but, but conclusion that we've arrived at. So that's a good point. And just the idea that, um, and on the other hand, like the church, even if we, let's say we go and we start this colony of ours, I mean, we're going to develop a, a political system or some sort of governing structure, right? Um, and there that's, has to be, there has to be, to be productive to be, and to that's, be useful yeah. to fulfill the cultural mandate even. So that's even on a small scale, you even have this. And I mean, that's sort of in, you see this in the house, the household, right? Like, I mean, there's, there's structure, there's, there's laws that are put in place where, where the members of the household are expected to follow these laws. And, and I think that's sort of like a micro um, level government. And we see that sort of playing out that's on a, a bigger point. scale. Yeah. And I, I think, so I don't think it's something that we can, we can avoid altogether. Um, and then also to realize, like this guy was saying in this book here, that, you know, the politician has a theological view, whether he's a believer or not. I mean, he's informed by, you know, if he's an atheist, he's informed by his belief um, in there being no God. I mean, we see a lot of believers or a lot of, sorry, a lot of politicians these days are, are, are leaning towards that more and more. I mean, Trudeau, he, he says, I guess on paper that he's a Catholic, um, but I don't think that his policies are painted by a commitment to Catholic doctrine. Um, and so if he, let's say was committed to a view of God as being the ultimate authority, because as Paul says in, in Romans 13, there is no authority, but from God, how do you think that that would inform his policy making? In quite more of a, a, a Christian way. It's, it's interesting that you bring that up though, because uh, his Catholicism, I mean, uh, our current prime minister, is that uh, many, I think the majority of Canadians are nominally Christian, hmm. just not practicing. So That's I guess, a good point. Right. Very right. I think you can see in Western society, the majority of morality is informed or descends from at some points, scriptural values. Yeah, that's, that's a good, that's a good point in saying, how does that inform us today in this increasingly secular society where people aren't actually devoted followers of Christ? I mean, they're just nominally on the surface, uh, Protestants or Catholics. And I think that's, what we see in Justin Trudeau. Now his dad, now we were talking about this earlier. His dad, Pierre Trudeau was the prime minister at one point in our country. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. you had mentioned something to me that I didn't know. So we have in Canada, in the States, they have what's called the constitution, right? And they have the bill of rights and the declaration of independence. They have these founding documents. And we also have foundational documents in Canada. Um, now, most people don't even know about these because they're certainly not as, uh, popular or or get the attention that the american constitution gets but we have the i believe it's the you can correct me if i'm wrong the british north america act which is, is that would a constitutional be the, the original form of our constitution yes yeah and then we there, have there later many documents in, that uh, that come together to form to form canada's constitution okay and then i wanted to talk about specifically the what we call the charter of, of rights and freedoms now, the reason I want to talk about these documents so we can actually talk about the constitutional documents of the United States also is how they speak of religion 
what they say, but also what they don't say. And I'll, I'll tell you what I mean here. So you've heard this phrase as, as have most people, this idea of the separation of church and state. Um, and that is something that gets thrown around a lot, especially I would say by, well, not just non-believers, because there's believers who will say, well, the reason that the Christians shouldn't be involved in politics or take interest in politics is because there needs to be a separation between church and state. But a total, a total fallacy, I might point yeah, out. Yeah, a fa- exactly. And that's sort of what I want to get into is, is that is a fallacious way of thinking, because first of all, you have to ask the question, well, what do you mean by that, the separation of church and state? Now, the way that most people, I understand, the way that they, how they see that phrase, that let's call it a doctrine, they see it as a way of keeping the church uninterested or, or uninvolved in political affairs. But from the research that I've done, that whole idea, and by the way, this phrase, the separation of church and state, isn't found within the constitutional documents of America or Canada. Um, the whole idea behind that was, it goes back to a letter that Thomas Jefferson was writing to a Boston congregation um, with regards to the idea that the government shouldn't be involving itself in the affairs of the church or have a controlling interest in the church. And so the way that most people see it now is that, well, the church shouldn't be involved in politics, but how it was originally used or intended was that the government shouldn't be getting involved in the church. And we know that the American democratic experiment was very much one of separating itself from the English continental system where you have a state sponsored church So in England specifically, you have the Anglican church and the head of the Anglican church is actually the queen, right? She was the defender of the faith. And so that goes back to Henry VIII, right? When he separates from the Roman Catholic church. But instead of the Pope now being at the top of the hierarchy, you have the the head of state is now the head of the, the, um, the, the political sphere, the government but also of the ecclesiastical sphere. And so the forefathers of the Americas were trying to to avoid that. I would just like to touch on for a minute here something interesting. If you think of the Westminster Confessions, where they Mm. get their name from is that they're written at Westminster Palace in the House of Lords, which would be analogous to Canada's Senate. So I think perhaps still today or up until fairly recently, religious leaders from the Anglican church would sit in and have a vote in the house of Lords, the, the Senate equivalent of the United Kingdom. Wait, that's, uh, interesting. that's a good point to segue though, into the, to, into a more reformed Christian perspective with regards to the Westminster confession of faith and what it has to say about um, civil government and civil obedience, etc., cetera, et cetera. Um, I actually have a copy of the, the Westminster confession right in front of me. Um, it's not coincidence. <laughs> I was, uh, <laughs> I was prepared. We, we were um, reading this earlier. This is chapter 23 of the Westminster confession. It says that God, the Supreme Lord and King of all the world hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him over the people for his own glory and the public good. And to this end hath armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evil 
doers. It then goes on to say that it is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate when called thereunto in the managing whereof as they ought, especially to maintain piety, justice, peace, according to the wholesome laws of each commonwealth. So for that end, they may lawfully now under the new Testament wage war upon just and necessary occasions. So that's, there's a lot there. Um, and there that, last, there, yeah. <laughs> that last sentence talks about the just war. We're not going to get into that today because we'd be here all night. But what I want to talk a about fascinating is a fascinating topic to be sure. Yes. <laughs> what I want to do is, is touch on a couple of things that are mentioned here. So that's the paragraph one and two of the Westminster confession, chapter 23 of the civil magistrate. Basically it, it points out, and this is based upon the teachings of the new Testament. It points out that God is ultimately the, the, the authority. So although we do have distinctions between the, the civil sphere and the ecclesiastical sphere, we do see an overlap in terms of God's being the head of both. Ultimately he's the Lord and King of all the world. It says, and that the, the, the role of civil magistrate. Now, maybe we can talk about how that that's, this is different than what we have in our democratic system to an extent. We don't have a, um, a monarchy here, but that, that no, office, correct. that office of leader of that office bearing role is something that is ordained by God and that Absolutely. these officers, Absolutely. these officers have been armed with the power of the sword uh, for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers. And that's ultimately what Paul's talking about in Romans 13. Now that's obviously an ideal situation that we're given there. Um, we would like for the, the, the civil leaders to execute justice according to scriptural teachings. But of course we know that that is, you know, often not the case. Um, but I, th I think that that can connect back into our topic that, you know, the reason of, of why should I vote is hmm. from a Christian perspective, you're not, you're not voting as just a citizen, you're voting as a Christian citizen. And it, it becomes That's a good point. almost an opportunity to advance your morality and advance I, I, in an ideal scenario to advance your morality and advance um, the Christian Christian administration of justice on, on your society. That's a, that's a really good point, I think. And so if we accept the reality that the base conclusion that we have, we exist in this society, um, which is governed by a political party and a political class, however, that works itself out, whether it's a, a king or a queen or a constitutional republic, whatever it is, that that exists. And the thing is about the democratic system is that we actually, with the vote, have a say in who those people at the top will be. And that is right. somewhat... And it's a, a that's, very important tool. Exactly. That's, that's what we we mean by a democratic society is that the people, the public, now there's all sorts of discussions about the, the that could be have about the faults and flaws of democracy and, and whatnot. But typically speaking, if you look back throughout the history of humanity and the way that they've been governed and have governed themselves and the way that people have exercised power, you don't have much of this democracy. Do you? No, no, not looking back. And it's interesting to, uh, to even consider how Christians responded in, in those scenarios as well. 
hmm. to the government that was set up over them. Very, very, you know, even, even when they did not have a say at the ballot box, they still, um, attempted to advance, advance Christian, Christian ethics and justice and to oppose, um, places where the government misstepped. Absolutely. I, I mean, so here's the thing we've been given almost this, this gift, this opportunity to, to have a say in who rules us. And if their primary Absolutely. purpose, if their purpose of the government is to, let's say, exercise justice in God's earth, because the earth is the Lord and the, full, and the fullness thereof. So they're not free from that responsibility to exercise justly according to Certainly God's not. word. Yeah. And so we actually are given a, an opportunity here to have a say in that. And if we want the society within which we live to follow a certain pattern of justice, if we want to see to the welfare of the polis, of the city within which we live, remember when the, the Israelites are sentenced to exile in 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 Babylon, they're told to seek the welfare of the city within which they live. And I think we as as Christians should seek to the welfare of the city within which we live. And I think part of the process by which we we accomplish that is through the vote. Well that's that's an excellent point there, Bryce. That's that's something that I've never uh, never considered myself, but that's that's a very interesting a very interesting application of that that uh, historical passage. Yeah, I just think it's important to we see that you know if we're thinking about the greater good of the society and and it ultimately comes down to an ethical an ethical discussion I think and 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 this is more and more how I'm seeing politics it's a matter of ethics. Um and and here's what I mean by that. All political policies and public policies ultimately are rooted in some form of morality or some moral uh, framework or assumption. Um, the reason that you're told you can't do this or you should do this, ultimately at the base, there's a, there's a moral principle involved. And I think that's ultimately what drives people, right? People are concerned about ethics and about morals and about what they think is right and wrong. And that's... Every, yeah, almost ahead. every action besides mundane, you know, the mundanity of life uh, is guided, not, not just political action, but, but any action is, is guided by uh, morality and ethics. Absolutely. Absolutely. Totally. And I think that that informs the political sphere um, as much as anything. And we as Christians are obviously concerned with ethics. We're very much concerned Absolutely. with right and wrong. God is concerned with right and wrong. So here's an example abortion um you know 100,000 unborn children killed in Canada every single year now that is the result of public policy legislation legalization of that act now if you're a christian and you are presented with an option and you have option a is the um the politician who is going to continue to promote abortion and make abortion uh, more, more regular. And then you have the politician who is, is condemning abortion and who wants to, let's say, uh, get rid of it altogether or, or make it less common. I mean, what option do you have as a Christian? I feel like to say that you shouldn't take interest or be invested in the outcome of that election would be somewhat, uh, problematic. Would you agree? 
Yeah, I'd agree. I'd say on, on any issue where God's law or, or Christian, Christian ethics come into play, I think that sort of elucidates or brings out the need to vote, vote your conscience, I would say, it would be, I think, an important thing for the Christian, Christian citizen to do when, when exercising their right to vote. Sure, absolutely. So we, so there's certain issues, I think, where it's obvious, like, you can't just say you're disinterested, or you can't be apathetic as a Christian to say the issue of abortion, which is tied to politics, right? It's, it's made the law of the land by the lawmakers and the, the policymakers who are in office. And the people who are in office are those people who, who are elected in via the democratic system, which is a result well, of... And I would, I would also just add to that, I don't think there's been a government since the dawn of democracy that has not enacted some provision that would affect the church in some sense. Yeah. So you're talking more like directly to tied towards uh, how the, the policies affect churches. So how, right. so whether, whether positively or negatively. Sure. Uh, it's, and we see this happening right earlier, now. They're, they're going to touch each other, right? Sure. Absolutely. So this idea that the church are there, there's this total separation is, it's not really realistic. And I mean, we see it happening right now um, with the church, with the government and COVID and they kind of decide finally who, when the church can open, when the church can open, but that's sort of a more of an extreme example of something that's been happening for a long time. I mean, there's always going to be issues with uh, property um, zoning laws, um, taxes, taxes, attendance, uh, like um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like certain codes, right? Uh, we have fire sure, codes and stuff that are in place, well, put in place. Standards. I would just like to say, mentioning back for a moment to separation of church and state, it's less of that they shouldn't be involved with each other to some extent. It's, I think, the elimination of that the church should not govern the people as, as a whole collectively. Mm-hmm. That, that, should be, that should be removed. But also that the, the people through the government should not govern matters of the church. I think that's the sort of crux of the issue is uh, perhaps in our current circumstances with this pandemic is defining what is an issue of the church and what is an issue of the state in the, the interest of welfare for its people, which is not an ignoble, ignoble cause. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. And, 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 but it's also, it's a, it's not an easy discussion, especially in today's society where you don't have these, um, where the state is, I think, more and more, let's say, bolstered in her um, power over spheres of society. And I mean, that's ultimately what you you, you would expect in a secular society, right? Um, when you When you lose that sort of, at least that idea or that principle of, existing under a supreme being now you had mentioned something interesting to me the other day we were talking about the charter of rights and freedoms and and you mentioned a a paragraph in there that was i think you said implemented by pierre trudeau and well that was his that was his whole um his whole uh, brainchild you could say his his legacy was um, taking the constitution and patriating it from great britain to canada and, and with that, he also had the opportunity to enact constitutional reform. And that's sort of how our Charter of Rights and Freedoms was birthed, in essence. I might not have all the details precisely straight there, but that's, that's the origin of, of that document in particular, was uh, Trudeau Sr. 
but he he had said something in there. He made reference to supreme being, correct? For sure. In the preamble, I don't know if you have the the document handy. Yeah, preamble. That's the uh, preamble of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Right. So, um, if I could quote it for a moment here, whereas sure. Canada is founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law. Interesting. I doubt and you. I'm just I doubt here on I the was... site that I pulled up. Yeah. The significance of the reference to the supremacy of God is in an increasingly secular society <laughs> is questionable. Is, that, is oh, I see. Say. I'm looking at that same one here. That's you of Toronto there. Yeah. <laughs> so is an increasingly sec- is questionable. Um, the significance of, I like that comment, how they have to put that comment in there. So the significance of the reference. For sure. So basically, I, I, sorry, just for a moment, I was, yeah. I was searching for these precise words the other day and I found them. It's, it's been referred to as quote, the embarrassing preamble. The Even embarrassing the preamble. Written, Interesting. So that for, goes to for show those you what, words there, the supremacy of God. So that goes to show you just how people, I mean, Pierre Trudeau, we never see him as like a paragon of Christian ethics, but I mean, he even puts that in there and it just goes to show how things have changed so much um, in these, in these recent times. And just the idea of this idea, the significance of the reference is questionable. Um, so just the, what it means to people and that's, and here's the thing. And I heard, you know, someone say the separation of church and state does not mean the separation of church or state and God. That's how, I think that summarizes how people take that phrase today. They think that it means the separation of the state and God, but that's not um, what it was originally intended to mean. And that's certainly, certainly not. not how scripture talks about the state is never separate from God. God is the one who ordains the people who are in power and he is sovereign over everybody. So whether it's an ecclesiastical sphere or a political sphere, um, he has given the church, the keys of the kingdom, we read about scripture and he has given the, the government, the civil government, the sword, uh, the sword of, to, to enact justice, um, to protect life, to protect life, to restrict, to restrain wickedness and to punish evildoers. Um, whereas the, the church is to be concerned with the administration of the gospel of, of mercy and of, of, of love. Right. And so we have these two things which are supposed to be in a sense, complementary. But now you see this division being drawn uh, between them where you have this secular government which does not see itself as existing under God. And then you have this church over here which, which says it professes to be under God and they're having more and more conflicting opinions about ethical issues. So what do you think the future is of the, of the, the church in the state? I don't think, I think most of us would agree it's not going to be, get easier to be the church going forward in, in her relationship with yeah, the government. Perhaps you're right, perhaps you're wrong. I think that recently we've seen uh, less of a tolerance towards, you know, some churches and some of their views or the, the church as a whole. But I don't think that that's necessarily impossible. I, we're, I don't think we're ever going to return to a, a homogenistically Christian society, such as in the, um, you know, the colonies, uh, the colonies in the States or in the United Kingdom or Europe at, at various times. But I, I don't think that necessarily, I don't think that the struggle between the butting of heads between the church and state 
is, is doomed to, to only worsen. I could, I could see an improvement in, in certain sense. Interesting. And I think that's it's, between yeah, the two. Yeah, that's a good point. I think, I think your optimism is probably, uh, it's not the, the majority report. Um, and, and Certainly, I think probably yeah, not, probably not, but I don't think that's wrong. I think that's, I mean, we don't know ultimately what God has in store for this country. Um, and if you look back at history, like, I mean, going back beyond the, the foundation of this country and the Amer- in America, like, I mean, things change. I mean, look at the, think about the Roman, the Roman system. So you had a, a monarchy for, you know, several hundred years. And then the people, they swore off monarchy and they became a quote unquote republic. Um, and, and basically monarchy was seen as something that was doomed as a past uh, system and that they would never return to something like that again, because basically the principle stands that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And you can't have that much power in the hands of one man, but then look what happens with Julius Caesar and the subsequent um, emperors of Rome. So they actually go from a Republic or sorry, from monarchy to a Republic uh, for several hundred years. And then they return to a monarchy again. Um, So do you think, that we would ever see something like that happen in modern times. So you see a monarchy return, you mean? Yeah. Or, or a change in, in system of governments. Sure. I don't know. I, I think we like to uh, think humans are morbidly fascinated by the idea of a dystopian future. That's a pretty, a pretty common theme in, in novels and movies. Uh, perhaps we could sure. slide into a dictatorship. There's, changing circumstances right people people have been able to unite countries around themselves and, and claim for themselves power um, you look at the example of hitler sure, you know, sure. That, was, that was quite a lot of people that he was able to convince to rally around him you know but i think on the flip side just looking back to the struggle between church and state i think that there are a small number but an increasing number of secular people who recognize the value of religion and mm. recognize the value of Christian ethics or religious ethics, mm. you know, to be um, like on a pragmatic level in the, uh, in the public sp- for sure. Yeah. And now, you know, just so in my not little... to say that there can't be a respect, you know, sure. Between, sure. Uh, and just a, a, a somewhat of a respect. Yeah. Like, I guess, but that, that implies that would assume that you have sort of common ground on, on certain ethical issues. Um, which I think is decreasing. I think it still exists in certain places where you have these sort of this similar ideas as to the common good. Um, but I think those, those sort of similarities are dissipating a little bit. Um, it just reminds me of, you know, after the French Revolution or during the French Revolution, you had this, this massive radical push to secularization, at, you know, which cost people's lives and, and churchmen were, were killed and etc. And you basically had this cult of reason, which was established. And so the cat, the this Catholic church was basically done away with in this country, which had historically been, been Catholic for, for centuries. And then, um, you know, that, that when Napoleon comes along after that, he himself was not a, not a religious man per se, but he saw the, the need for a religious institution to let's say, um, I don't know how you would put it to help to be the opiate of the masses to help God. Yeah. to what Marx would call the opiate of the masses. So maybe he saw it more of that way. It's like, well, I need something to um, keep the people occupied or something like that. So, it's, so that is that you mentioned, 
Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so is that really like, is that a good thing? Like, because ultimately those people aren't for God. So um, they're allowing the church to exist. Even though, and maybe there is some, maybe there is some good to that ultimately, because I mean, if you have a, a ruler who is a Christian personally, but he's incompetent at ruling at governing, how does that compare with having a, a, a non-believer who is competent and who is committed to religious freedom and liberty? Right. Someone who's, who's tolerant of, to the extent that you can be of, of beliefs, I guess you would say then from that perspective. Sure. And they basically see the church as a meaningful sympathetic towards Christianity. Yeah. Or they just see the, yeah, they see religion as uh, the church as being this useful tool for society. And so they're going to let it, let it, let it thrive. I'd also say another aspect of that would be social good. Sure. Uh, Especially you you just mentioned the French Catholics. Um, At certain points in history, there was a lot of of social good being done by that group in particular or by Catholics or Christians and starting hospitals and and missions. And you can even see that today. Um, Missions to the homeless and, and other that are sort of religiously organized by the church. So, and, and also I think you have to mention today that they've also done a lot of societal harm in, in, in some, in some periods of time. Sure. So, Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But, and, but perhaps uh, and, a recognition of the potential for, you know, social good or, or tasks that the church can complete, um, particularly better than the government could, I think, in, uh, you know, outreach to people. Even, sure. Even and just in a, yeah, that's a good, you raise a good needs, point. You know? You raise a good point, but I think that there's been part of that because um, comes about by the misunderstanding of the institutions of church and state. Because originally, you know, prior to Constantine and the declaration of Rome being a Christian uh, empire, you had the church engaging in a lot of um, acts of mercy and and caring for the orphan and the widows and filling that gap that had existed that that wasn't being looked at and they were looking after not just themselves but also uh the non-believers too they were seeing to their well-being and their needs and that was one of the major reasons why they were able to win over so many people was because of of their compassion because of their love and their desire to care for the needy and and the, the downtrodden of society and you see that all throughout history too the church taking that upon themselves um in different places wherein they exist. And often nowadays we hear a lot solely about the negative of the church and what the church has done negatively. And we sort of discount all the the positive because we live in a society, a a welfare society where people for social um, alleviation will turn to the government for a check um, for social assistance to help them. But in the past, that didn't exist. And so the, ch- the church has sort of, I don't know how the, the ins and outs of that work, but has sort of, let's say, um, surrendered that role maybe in some extent to, to the state, where it's now the state is mm-hmm. taking care of these things, whereas once it was the church. And even in the sphere of education, like you look at all the major universities in the West, they're all founded uh, by the church, primarily for the teaching of, of ministers. Um, I think well, the, uni- even the university, university who yeah, he, discarded that lovely book. That's how you picked up earlier. Well, exactly. So, um, yes. Was it Methodist? 
Yeah, I think it was. And who, you, who are the Wesleys? U of M is the same way. University of Manitoba, also in Winnipeg, same thing. You look at the other major constant, uh, institutions of education, um, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, all of them. Um, they're, they're founded by the church. And so the church was, was providing education. The church is providing hospitality. Um, all of these things, which the state now takes it upon herself to administer. And so, and you have a secular society, people say, well, we still need these things to happen, but we don't want it to happen under the authority, or let's say, as that preamble put it, with the acknowledgement of the supremacy of God. And so we want to do it separately. And I guess that goes back to the beginning. And that's the, the fall of Adam and Eve is they want that knowledge. They want to operate as a law unto themselves. And they don't want to acknowledge the supremacy of God in their lives. And I, I think we have seen in the past hundred years or so when, when a state has gone militantly atheistic, it, now we also acknowledge that church um, run Christian so, so-called Christian empires are not they they're not uh, they don't have the cleanest record in, in all cases. But I think you could make the case that the bloodiest moments in history are those which we see in the in the past hundred years, where these radically atheistic groups have taken charge. Especially, I'm thinking of of Stalin, Russia, and Mao's China. Yeah, that's correct. Certainly, a lot of a lot of lives lost there. But also even yeah, functional differences, I think one of those regimes, you know, tried a, a 12 or 14 day work week or mm. a 14 day week. And that's, uh, you know, breaking away from what we might see as the biblical pattern. And that didn't didn't go so well for them. So it's interesting <laughs> that that's a, that's a functional thing that uh, you know, we're set up for. So, so. Anyways, getting back to sort of the core issue here with the election coming up. So if I'm a Christian, what do you think I should be looking at when I go to the polls? What, what should be on my mind? I think primarily your conscience, right? I think mm. that you're going to want to look at each of the options that you have before yourself in your, in your local riding and sort of measure up to the candidates, their, their party stance and their personal stance against you know, what you know to be biblically true morality and the justice and the ethics that uh that you hold your, your worldview essentially measuring them against that i think that's a, a great stand like isn't it's amazing that we have this word of god and the world scoffs at this but we have this this is basically our paradigm here right the bible and so if we if we want to vote as informed citizens during an election for us as christians that means actually prioritizing our citizenship in heaven, first and foremost, right. because we're drawing our our principles from God um, and from his word. Right, from the, the, the supremacy of the word of God, right? Which is something divine inspired by God, which comes from above. And so we ultimately understand that, yes, we're pilgrims and soldiers in this world. This isn't ultimately our final destination. But... When we vote, we're voting according to something which is eternal, um, which is the word of the Lord, which endures forever. And so in order to vote an informed vote, we need to be familiar with our Bibles because that is going to 
um, guide our conscience. Our conscience needs to be bound to the word of the Lord, needs to be bound to Jesus, who alone is the Lord of the conscience. And so that needs to inform our decision. And so when I, when I, if I'm thinking about, oh, who am I going to vote for? Well, maybe I need to say, well, who is going to implement the most biblical pattern? Now, right. we can say that it's not like you're going to open up the plat- party platform and see all these biblical principles because I don't think any of these parties are saying, well, how can it's, I be the most it's, biblical? It's never that easy, eh? No, but when you I think, can I think see... Always- yeah, but you can see things like, for example, well, are they going to protect life? You know? Now, let's just get really practical here, though. Let's... let's neither of the parties... We have an election coming up. It's going to be the liberals or the conservatives that get in, correct? <laughs> if if uh, something else happens, I'd, I'd certainly be surprised. Okay, so, so let's see the the Vegas odds on that: sixty to one, hundred to one. <laughs> so let, yeah, let's say let's say it's going to go one of two ways. Now, uh, neither Justin Trudeau and the Liberal Party are certainly not um, committed to well, the I'd life. Say- Sorry, go ahead. More particularly, it might go three ways. It's it's either going to be a liberal minority again, like yep. supported by the NDP, a liberal majority, or you know perhaps a conservative minority with influences from others, or unlikely at this point, a conservative majority. majority. But it's so still it, a toss up, I think, in many respects. So it's going to be a minority, probably liberal, probably conservative, one of those two. Um, For sure, that, that those will be the dominant party, at least, if you wanted to look at it at it that so way. So, if we look at the Liberal Party platform, we look at Justin Trudeau's um, commitments, and we compare that with the Conservatives. Neither of those are pro-life politicians. Neither of those are pro-life platforms. Um, Aaron O'Toole has said he will not change legislation. I think he personally, Aaron O'Toole is a leader of the Conservative Party. He personally is not pro-life. Uh, I think he's pro-choice. Trudeau is obviously avowedly pro-choice. Uh, he's pro-abortion. So what is the duty of the Christian at the ballot box then? And I know I've made sort of well, abortion the, the crux of the issue here, but I think that abortion is, I think it is for me anyways, and I, I, I don't know how everyone else feels, but for me, this is sort of the top of the list. I mean, and and that has a huge sway on on how I, I think about these things. And I think it has a huge sway on how a lot of evangelicals um, think about this. But ultimately, there's other issues involved in this election as well, especially with COVID um, and legislations and restrictions, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I guess we can't narrow it down strictly to abortion. But let's say that neither of the parties in play are offering us what we want. How do we vote? Right. That's, that's interesting, I guess. Usually in, in democracy, and this is the, uh, the pity in the system, is you're going to be drawn to the least objectionable choice. Hmm. But I would say just generally, you know, if, if you're looking at party A and party B and party C, it's going to be party A or B that gets in. If, if C matches your views more closely or, or, you know, you don't have to pinch your nose as much while marking the ballot, <laughs> um, I think that certainly picking the least objectionable um, and leaving it at that. Don't, don't be thinking about, you know, my party's not going to win, so I won't vote for them. Don't be thinking about, oh, am I taking this vote away? Because it, I think it is, you know, of primal importance to vote your conscience. And that's certainly not a wasted vote. If, if you vote for a party that, 
is only going to get a couple hundred votes and won't get in. The major parties do take note of that, especially if they've lost by a slim margin or it's a riding where it's a, it's a, it's a toss up. They're going to be looking to, to access those votes. So yeah, I would, I would just say a primal importance on any issue to vote your conscience, find the, find the option that, that suits you best. That's a good point. You raise a great point. People think that, well, if the party doesn't going to get in, it's not going to make a difference, but people see that because it actually expresses how, how a good portion of the population feels, even if it isn't the majority, because for example, we know that in the last uh, election for the conservative leadership, uh, we had an avowedly pro-life candidate and she actually did way better than people thought she would, I think. And I think that sends us a, a sign uh, to Ottawa and says, well, maybe that this issue isn't closed and shut or as closed and shut as we thought it was. Maybe Canadians um, do actually think differently about this abortion issue than we maybe thought. And in, in the context of that issue, I think it's, um, it's, it should be noted that, you know, there are people on both sides in, in at least two of the major parties. I, I know of liberal MPs who, who would hold to a, a pro-life view. Interesting. And conservatives that would, that would hold. It's, it's, it's a toss up really. I think from their, from their perspective, federally it's, and in this election now with, with the way that the laws have gone in Canada, it's, it's almost a non-issue from any government's perspective, any party's perspective. Hmm. You know, the law, unfortunately on that issue is not, you know, prone to change. No. And, and there's other things people are, thinking about now is is especially with covid and of course and and, and yeah. there are other issues even even besides the the hot button hot button issues that christian morality is going to have something something to say about you know the execution of justice sure what about and, uh, the idea that you i mean what's the significance of a seat so if you let's say that you talked about the people's party of canada they don't have a seat in ottawa right now but what if people vote for them enough and they get a seat, what significance does that have? If I'm being honest, not a lot. There are, there are several issue parties in Canada, you know, the marijuana party, the the people's party. There's going to be another, another right-wing party. Oh, what's that? uh, The Alberta separatist party, whatever. Yeah. There's the Wexit party. I think they're the Maverick party now. Right. Or, or the Bloc Québécois. Yeah. One seat really isn't, uh, you could look at the Greens as an example. One seat really isn't going to make a difference. They get to speak. Um, they get certain privileges if they elect enough, enough candidates. But you really have to get more than a couple to hold, hold even the balance of power. So let's say I have 20 seats, 30 seats. Let's say I have 30 seats. What does that do? Well, certainly in a minority situation, it might be necessary for me as a as the minority, if I have a, I believe a plurality of the seats, you could say, or I have the minority, the minority of the seats, but the, the largest, the largest group, yeah. I might need you to cross that threshold of half of the seats in order to govern. To vote on something. So essentially in, in that sense, um, you know, a party with 140 seats might be brought to their knees essentially by other parties that they need to sort of get into bed with in order to govern. So it's certainly, once you cross a certain threshold in the context of a minority government, it does bring with it the opportunity to exercise some power or advance some of your own views. 
And so the more people we have in power who have a biblical understanding of justice, I mean, uh, the, the, the better, I would say. I mean, obviously, you need to have a certain abilities, too, um, that go beyond just a knowledge of Christian doctrine. You need to, to be a leader in the, the broader sense of the term as well. And, and I think that, you know, there's certainly, I don't want to paint the picture that, you know, politics is perfect and, you know, um, there isn't problems uh, with the political system, but I think the extreme is, and maybe we'll just sort of, sort of close here. The, 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 we need to avoid the extreme of thinking that, we shouldn't be involved in politics because it is this ungodly uh, system or that it's not something that we should be concerned with because it's, it's, it's secular or it's. Of course. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, with the context of, or, or looking at a vote, well, it's, it's not free. You're going to pay with it in your taxes. I forget how, how many, however many millions it takes to run an election, but. Um, oh, that's a good a, point. Right. It's, it's a cheap, relatively way to uh, certainly in your time spent to to express your views anonymously even and and have them become part of the public record you know all the tallies are are there to see right that's it's, a really good point the government is soliciting your your view i read that in an article i was reading earlier today they're they're actively trying to say you know who do, who do you want to lead who do you trust to lead and, and in the context of our party system you know whose platform do you agree with? That's a good, that's a great point. And I think maybe we could like this um, democracy thing as the democracy in the modern Western sense is, is often referred to as an experiment of sorts. And if we look at history, I mean, we don't know how long this is, is going to last, how free our country will be tomorrow. Like you said, maybe things will get better, but they might, they might get worse. So, um, and yeah. so, and so maybe we have an opportunity to, to have a say, um, and we should exercise that freedom and that pri privilege while we have it. I would say perhaps that, you know, as long as your conscience can stomach voting for one of the choices, perhaps mm. voting is the bare minimum that a Christian should do as far as involvement in the political sphere is concerned. Now, here's another question quickly, because I was talking with someone about this. What, what about the person who, who, who goes into the, the ballot box, but, but spoils their ballot? Mm, you're talking about an intentional spoiling. <laughs> they yes. didn't misunderstand the yes. rules or have yes. markets. Yeah. Yes. Well, I would just say it's, uh, it's in our province here, we have the unique option uh, with four other provinces of, of rejecting our ballots. Uh, so you can, you can take it into the booth and say, you know, I, I looked at the choices, none of them agree with me and reject it. And, and that way it's nice that you can separate yourself from people who, who didn't quite understand how to, how to put an X in the circle. So federally that doesn't exist. I was just speaking of provincial elections, but that, that is another option to make a statement, but that's, that's the only caveat is you don't know if, you know, if you see 20 spoiled ballots, you don't know if, you know, somebody scribbled or, or, mm. or what have you. That's a good point. But at least at that point you're going in there, you're saying, you know what, I'm concerned about this, but I'm expressing my, uh, dissidents i'm expressing my uh, well, hey, you can you can write whatever you want on there it'll just be the yep. poll workers and the party representatives who see it but it's an opportunity and to say you know that yeah and you i mean yeah exactly you could write whatever you want on there um and at least you're you've taken the time um you know it doesn't take that long to vote especially if you uh, attend the advanced polls exactly in, and um, in a few minutes 
so we basically established there, you know, to ask the question, we covered a lot of ground tonight and, uh, and we've kind of gone that's, all that's too much in the setup. But... Well, you know what? Um, you know what? That's, that's fine. I think that we need to have somewhat of a theoretical conversation um, to sort of lay the groundwork of the practical application. And I think these are fascinating issues to, I mean, especially for those who I think that are um, fans of the great exchange. I think that these, they're not uninterested um, with regards to um, the role of, of politics and its relation to the church. So, um, but I thank you for, for coming on and, and, and giving us some, some guidance, you know, more for, far more about this stuff than I do. So I really appreciate your, I certainly don't know the most. I hope that uh, everything I said today was, was true and correct. Yes. We're, we're going to hold you accountable, my friend. Um, and I'm going to scrutineer every, every, every iota of your words tonight. So as will our our listeners but no i i in all seriousness i appreciate you you coming on i appreciate you having me bryce it's a it's a good opportunity to even just to speak with you as well all right and thank you um to everyone who 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 listened and make sure to tune in uh, next week for another episode of 21st century christian god bless (laughs) 